Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a Distinguished Professor of Law at UC Hastings College of Law and the Director of the Center for Litigation and Courts, which produces this series. Episode 7 of Litigation Briefs covered the rules of court, including why they're important and how they're made. The short answers were that, yes, they are important, and that they are made in a complicated process involving advisory committees appointed by the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Court rules are designed for a particular group, lawyers and judges, with a particular set of demographic traits. Lawyers and judges, in turn, are in service of a broader group with much more diffuse demographics. Lawyers serve ordinary clients, and judges serve law and justice for society generally. In light of the downstream effects of court rules, does the particular demographic makeup of the rule makers reflect the demographics of lawyers, judges, and the general public? And if not, does that matter? Here to help me with these questions is my guest, Brooke Coleman, co-associate dean for research and faculty development and professor of law at Seattle University School of Law. Brooke, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's start with some background. What are rules advisory committees? So the advisory committees are these groups of judges and practitioners and even sometimes academics like yourself and me (laughs) that are tasked by the chief justice to create these rules of procedure. So there are six committees. There's appellate, there's bankruptcy, there's criminal, there's civil, there's evidence. And then there's a standing committee that kind of sits atop of all of those as like quality control. And as you have talked about, there's this process for making the rules and the rules are created by and large by these committees. There are other characters in the mix. Congress, for example, gets involved and the court gets involved, but really most of the heavy lifting happens at the rulemaking committee level. And they're responsible for thinking of the new rules that need to be invented or thought about that haven't been thought about yet. And also amending the rules that exist to kind of be flexible and responsive to what's happening in civil litigation. So I would say that there is a lot of power that is constituted in these particular committees. Great. So let's now drill down on who are the members of the advisory committees, and maybe we can take the Civil Rules Committee as an illustration. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the current and historical makeup of those committee members? Yeah, so my original article was written in around 2018, in the spring of 2018, and I've since updated the Civil Rules status since then, this past fall of 2020. And so we have a little bit of different numbers and some things have improved. So I'll be happy to share that with you. But um, between 1934 and 2020, uh, 88% of the committee has been male and 97% of the committee has been white. So it is a very white institution. So that breaks down in raw numbers where you have 147 members, um, 124 are white men and five are men of color. There's been four black men and one Latinx individual, and then 18 white women. There've been no women of color on the committee historically or even now. Currently on the committee, or at least as of the fall of 2020, there were seven white women on the committee and six white men and one uh, black man on the committee. Um, I don't count the reporter because that individual doesn't have voting power on the committee and the reporters are usually academic members who are paid to draft the rules initially and do the minutes and things like that. 
And I also don't count the ex officio kind of government members like members of the DOJ, um, because those individuals aren't actually appointed by the Chief Justice. So if we look at the committee between you know, 1934 and now, um, it has been historically white and it has been historically male. How do those numbers compare to population demographics, lawyers, judges, and the general population? Yeah, it's really interesting if you look at it. So if we look at the general population, those numbers are underrepresentative, um, which I think is something we might expect, right? Because the legal practice has been exclusive. exclusive. It has excluded people of color and women for a long, long time. It's structurally a racist and sexist organization, I would argue. And so that means that you're gonna have an underrepresented group of people in the law practice anyway. So it's underrepresentative of the gender population and it's underrepresentative um, when we get into legal practice as well. Um, but it's very underrepresentative even when we look at the pool of people that the chief justice has to appoint from. So for example, if we look at federal judges, Federal district court judges provide a lot of positions on these committees. And if we look at a group of population, let's say like Latinx individuals, federal judges make up about 9% of, um, or Latinx people make up about 9% of the federal judiciary, yet there's only been one member on the committee ever and there's zero right now. Um, they are 5% of legal practice, and again, zero right now. So if we look at even the more exclusive group of people, that make up law practice or federal judges, the civil rules committee is even underrepresentative of that particular group. And I think that's what we need to pay attention to. They're definitely underrepresented the general population as we might expect um, because law practice is as well. Um, but one of the arguments we hear a lot is that there's not a pool of candidates, there's not a pipeline. And one of the responses I have is that actually there is. How have the committee demographics changed over, mm -hmm. over time? I assume, and you mentioned that maybe they've gotten a little better recently. <laughs> they have, you know, I don't want to be too critical, but things have improved. Um, you know, the committee started in 1934, at least the Civil Rules Committee did, right? So that's, a, that's been a long time. And we don't have the first woman joining the committee until 1971. And that's Honorable Shirley Hufstedler. She's the first one to come on board. And then there's a drought until the 80s. Um, and that's when we pick up some more female members of the committee. In the 90s, it peaks up to four members of the committee who are women, and then it goes down a little bit, and in the early aughts, it's down, and then in the teens, it goes back up to four, but then all of a sudden in the fall of 2018, I would love to think it was because of my article, but I'm not sure, all of a sudden the Chief Justice appoints seven members uh, who were women to the committee. So we went from four to seven. For the first time ever, the most number of women we've ever had on the committee were four. So all of a sudden now we have seven women on the committee. The committee for the first time is basically majority women, which is odd and wonderful and interesting to see. Um, but I would like to point out again that it's all white women um, that we're seeing. We don't have any women of color. Um, with respect to race, it's interesting because again, um, there's a drought for a while and it goes up and down. But a black man is appointed to the committee very early on in the 60s. Um, William Thaddeus Jr. is appointed at that point, but then there's another drought until the 90s, at which point Miles Link is appointed. And then starting in the 90s, basically what you get is just one man of color appointed per decade. So the improvement has been slow and in some cases very static. Um, so I don't know if we're gonna see another bump up and people of color, like we saw with respect to women in the next few years, I think that would be really good. Um, but we haven't seen that kind of bump with respect to race. 
And so why, why does the relative homogeneity on the advisory committees matter? Why do we care that there's a disparity between the committee membership and lawyers and judges or the general public? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think there are multiple levels of answers for that one. Um, I have three, but I'm sure there are other ones out there. For me, the three big important pieces to understand is that one, I think it impacts the legitimacy of the committee's work. I think whenever you have a power structure that actually doesn't reflect the population that is using those rules or using that institution, it reflects poorly on the institution and legitimacy is a huge concern. Um, I know when I was working for my judge, who was the chair of the standing committee at the time, and I would sit in those rooms and realize there were only a handful of women, if any, it felt marginalizing and it felt like I wasn't represented. So I think legitimacy is a real important concern. Second is I like to think of the rules as a product, right? They are a thing that people use and we want the best product possible. So we want optimal performance from our products. And all the social science with respect to group decision-making is fairly consistent in showing that the more diverse ideologically and identity-wise your group of decision-makers is, the better the product is. And this is especially true in the context of something that is deliberative, right? Which we know the rulemaking process can take three years. It takes a really long time. It's a long drawn out deliberative process. And so the friction that is created by diversity is actually very productive in that context. And you tend to get better products. This is true in law. This is true in business. I mean, we see this over and over and over again. It's replicated in study after study. And I would argue it should apply here that the more diverse you have, the more diverse group you have. And again, with respect to both ideology and identity, I think that's really important to point out because I argue in other places that ideological um, preclude, you know, uh, it's kind of sentiments the rulemakers have are important as well. The more diversity you have there, the better products you're going to have. And that's really what we want or the best rules possible. Um, the last reason for me is moral, right? Again, I think I alluded to this earlier. You know, the institution of law has excluded men of color and women for a long, long time. And it, can, it is like other organizations, you know, at its heart, racist and sexist. And we need to work to overcome that. And that means that folks who have power need to do what they can to remedy that lasting impact. And so I would say, you know, you and I as academics have a power to write the things that we write to try to influence. And the chief justice in his position has the power to remedy this exclusion of folks from the legal profession by appointing people who don't look like him. I think these are all responsibilities that we have as participants in legal practice, especially those of us who breathe some rarefied air. And I you know, have really tried to pressure not just academics, but also committee members to put some pressure on the chief to make these kinds of changes because I think it's our moral obligation. Well, if there are some demonstrable benefits to having more diversity on the committees and an applicable pool to, um, <laughs> to appoint people with diverse backgrounds, then why have the disparities persisted? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think it's one that we really need to reflect on, right? because I think there's a sense of, but we've appointed really good people to the committee, and they're really good at what they do. And I would say, absolutely, like, I have, I have no quarrel with that. That's absolutely true. Um, but inertia has its way of entrenching these kinds of racist and sexist underpinnings that we've seen in our history. And we have to be intentional about overcoming those. And so I think it's nothing, you know, it's not necessarily nefarious. I'm sure it was in the past. I don't think there's anything nefarious happening here, maybe even intentional. 
But I do think that it's important to point out that that doesn't make it right and that we do need to address it. So I think there are things about the process that just create that kind of status quo. Um, the people that the chief draws from tend to look like him and be in his circles. So for example, um, I've tried to pry into the way the administrative office of the courts works with respect, and you know what a black box a lot of that is in the work that you've done, to try to figure out how the nominees get to the chief. And you know, the AO works to try to get a group of people for him to look at when he makes his appointment. And one of the things that I was told by one of the folks that work there is they send out an email to all the chief justices of all the appellate courts. And I thought, so what? Like, of course, that's just going to repeat what we see as far as nominations. I mean, the federal appellate courts are 83% white and 74% male. And so it's just human nature to then be around and, and think of front of mind people who look like you and people who have your same background. So the pools that they're pulling from tend to repeat the bias. And so because there's been no bias intervention actively, I think that there has been this sense that, well, we have really good people on the committee and we'll just stick with what we've done. Um, and I do not quarrel with the fact that there are really good people on the committee, but I also think there's room for new people. So how, how might you better balance the demographics then? Yeah, yes. So that's always the key question, right? Like, how do we fix this? And this comes up in my work with respect to ideology, too, because it's like, do you have like five plaintiff positions and five defendant positions? And, you know, we definitely don't want to get into that. We don't want to have, you know, you need three black people and that kind of thing. That's not that's not the goal here. Um, but I think there's an in-between, right? And, you know, between us, you know, one of the things I'd love to see is for the chief not to make the appointments at all. Like, I don't understand why the chief makes a lot of the appointments that he makes, not even with rulemaking, but otherwise. Um, but I think that's a non-starter. So I think the place to intervene is in the pool of candidates that he gets. And so when we look at the way that people do hiring or other bias intervention, I mean, one of the best ways to sanitize that or to make it so it's more merit-based is to take identity out of it, right? So to take who these folks are out of it. And so the AO could, for example, create an independent commission, right? An independent group of folks who reach out to different groups than just the chief justices of the appellate courts to put forward your best and brightest. They select a group of folks that they think um, would be good to be on these committees. And then the chief selects them without knowing their identifying information, right? So that there really is like a merit-based selection then where, you know, just your sense of nepotism just doesn't kick in. Um, these are plum positions, right? These are positions that are power. Chief Justice uh, Roberts was on, was the chair of the appellate committee previous to being appointed to the court. Justice Alito was also on the committee. So was Gorsuch. I mean, these are powerful folks who run through these committees. And so I think there should be more of an effort to make sure that we're spreading that power more broadly. And so any of those kinds of um, situations where you can intervene in that bias and create a better pool, I think is a really good way to start. Well, Brooke, thanks for being on the show and for telling us about the demographics of the court rulemakers. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for paying attention to this issue. I think it really matters. This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the Center for Litigation and Courts website at sites.ucastings.edu slash CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson. <laughs>